I really appreciate uh, the leadership of our worship team. And uh, if you haven't been here for any length of time, uh, Kevin Perry is our worship arts pastor. And uh, his heart has always been to, to give away ministry, to equip others to lead us well. And so you may have noticed he's not here today. And yet we were so well led and uh, man, that encourages me like crazy. That's even as we think about body life, this whole withward focus that we have for this year, worshiping together is as core to that as anything that we do. So, uh, so very grateful for those that were serving today to, to lead us, lead worshipers. Well, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians. That's where we're going to be, uh, certainly for the rest of this fall. We'll, we'll hit the first three chapters in the fall semester, and then we'll pick up the second three in the spring. Um, if you, I don't know if you're a note taker, but I just want to encourage you that, uh, man, it's such a great way to capture your thoughts in a moment and then be able to come back to it later. Um, I can't tell you how many notes I've taken in my life, but I have never, ever, ever once regretted it. Uh, to be able to go back and see what God was showing me then and then to uh, see new things. Um, we have taught through this book before, years ago. And uh, I, I have just been so challenged and encouraged coming back into this book, studying again to teach it. And the Lord is uh, giving me some fresh things to think about and see. And, and honestly, that's, I think, where I want to begin today. Um, I, I heard a phrase years ago, uh, begin with the end in mind. You've probably heard that phrase before. And so I thought, well, gosh, let's apply it to the book of Ephesians. And if you turn over to the end of the book, and I hope you've been reading through it as Jeff encouraged us to do, 20 minutes front to back in that little letter. But if you get to the back of that letter in chapter 6, um, here's what you will find. Listen to these words. Finally, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having and having done all to stand firm." I don't believe this was an afterthought. I don't think Paul got to the end of the letter and then the Holy Spirit somehow said, oh, by the way, just make sure you say something about spiritual warfare. I have to believe that this was on Paul's mind from the first word. Because as far as he was concerned, this is life. We have all kinds of other descriptions that we might have of what we do and where we go and how we live and all of that. But this, this outlook defined how Paul saw the world. I think of Ephesians, this was one of these sort of new 
fresh insights for me as I'm studying. I, I thought, this is like a letter from a great general to the front lines. And he's trying to communicate things to his troops that will help them stay the course, fight well, and finish well. So, honestly, as I go through this book, it's going to be wartime from start to finish. And we will finish with these words I just read uh, several months from now. Now, I thought about this. You may not feel like it's wartime at the moment. And that's okay in terms of your experience. But honestly, what that does is it, it sort of sheds light on the fact that most of the war is invisible, most of it's happening out of sight. We feel the effects. We see the effects in the world around us. But we don't necessarily feel like it's wartime all of the time. I bet you can think of a time when it did. I was just reflecting on the day that Kimberly and I got news that she had been diagnosed with cancer. It was actually 10 years ago. Uh, this year. That feels like war, doesn't it? Maybe the day that you get the news that they are outsourcing your job and they don't have a need for you any longer, that feels like war, doesn't it? Maybe when one of your kids says, you know what, mom, dad, uh, gosh, I just don't think I buy this stuff anymore. This stuff of faith. That feels like war. Or when a husband or a wife just says, you know, I've lost that loving feeling. I think I'm done. See, it's not hard for us to imagine that we're in a war in those moments. But the fact is, the war is going on all day, every day, whether you feel it or not. And so Paul is writing to say, you're going to need to live your life with a wartime mindset. The Bible gives us several descriptions of this reality. Um, in that Ephesians 6 passage, Paul speaks of scheming a scheming devil accompanied by rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. And all of them are absolutely, utterly devoted to opposing everything that God is and does. 1 Peter 5.8, the Apostle Peter writes this, Your adversary, so he's not just against God. He's against you. Your adversary prowls around, he names him the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he'll take anyone. He's not picky. Jesus said very matter-of-factly in John 8, the devil is a murderer and a liar and the father of lies. And there is no truth in him. So that's the, that's the context in whether you 
like it or not, believe it or not, accept it or not, you have a ruthless enemy that is completely and utterly devoted to wrecking you spiritually. And though you may not always feel the attack, it's always going on. There's no such thing as a ceasefire. So, with that backdrop, that shapes how I read this first phrase that I'm about to read. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, if you read commentaries and you come across an explanation of that phrase, you'll find that it's the beginning of a long prayer of sorts. And some will say even the first three chapters could be included in that prayer. But certainly the first 14 verses are included. This is the beginning of a prayer wish, which was common in Paul's day as letters were written. Um, a doxology, which would be a declaration of uh, God's praise. Uh, eulogy is another word that's used to describe this, and it's actually taken from the word blessed um, in the Greek. So this is a song of praise. And what's very interesting is those first 14 verses in the Greek are one long sentence, nonstop. No punctuation. Like, did Paul take a breath? I mean, what in the world? Um, we obviously break it up into several ideas and phrases and all of that. But um, it was as if those first words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he just couldn't stop. And he just began to declare the goodness of God, honestly, that we were just singing about. This section of 14 verses is broken up into three parts. Verses 3 through 6, which I'll cover today, 7 through 12, which I think we're going to break up over two weeks, and then 13 and 14. You should notice as you're reading through that that it is Trinitarian. It highlights very obviously the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The ministry that each of them have as part of the Godhead and the praise that they deserve as a result of doing and being all that they are. So it's this beautiful declaration, a, a song of exaltation. But make no mistake, because of what this letter is about, because of how this letter ends... Paul is seeking to correct sinister truth that is so pervasive in our fallen worlds and in our fragile minds. He's addressing thoughts like, where is God when you need him? What has he done for you lately? If everything is his, why do you have to live on so little? If you're so loved, why is life so hard? His power seems to be more about controlling you than giving you the life of your dreams. 
What kind of God expects praise from his people when following him costs so much? Where do you think those voices come from? I'm reading an interesting book right now I would commend to you. It's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. It's been a very refreshing outlook on this war that we're talking about. And he talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. All opposed to God. All promoting questions like those. And Paul knows about this war, and so he is going right at it. So those lies, those are fighting words. And so he's going to take the fight to them. These aren't just sentimental Christianese, which unfortunately I think a lot of the beginnings of these letters kind of get treated that way. We just sort of walk through them quickly to get to the real good stuff. This is real good stuff. This is truth that will correct the lies that you might entertain at any given moment. Paul isn't just trying to build their self-esteem or inspire them with a pep talk. He is declaring war. Everything that he says is true about God flies right in the face of everything that the enemy says is true about God. So it's a conflict. And both sides can't be right or true. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what we're doing from verse 1 and on. Destroying strongholds and taking every thought captive. So let's look at verse 3 as a battle cry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed Again, that's where that word eulogy comes from. It means praiseworthy. It's very emphatic. Paul is essentially saying, blessed be God. And then he's looking around kind of going, come on, let's go. Right? He is blessing the Lord with that phrase, but he is most definitely urging everyone to join him in it. He is honoring the one whom Jesus honored and obeyed throughout his lifetime. I'll give you just one instance. John 14, 28 through 31. Listen to these words of Christ. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So Jesus modeled for us a posture toward God the Father. God the Father is the priority or focus of this part of this longer prayer. 
Now, blessing and praising God doesn't bestow anything upon him. It's not like we do God a favor by blessing him. It's really all about our ability to see him as he truly is. So if I bless God, that's just me recognizing his magnificence, his glory, his goodness. I'm simply saying what is true about him. To exalt God as Paul does is to underscore God's supremacy over everything, including and especially the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, his declaration of God's supremacy sends a message to the unseen world. God is in control. Now, right on the heels of this battle cry, Paul begins to offer an explanation for why God is blessworthy. And as you can imagine, there are countless reasons. We could go on and on and on extolling the goodness and greatness of God. But Paul focuses on the redemptive battle plan that God has been executing since the beginning of time. So that's where he takes off in verse 3b. I'll read the whole verse again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So two key terms there. Blessed and every spiritual blessing. You could sort of say, blessed be God because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's the big idea. Don't miss the location of that blessing. Where is it? In Christ. Don't forget that. There's almost nothing more important in this letter than that little phrase or some form of it. It actually shows up 11 times just in these few verses up through 14. Harold Honer, who wrote a great commentary on Ephesians, says, God has enriched us with every spiritual benefit necessary for our spiritual well-being. A significant aspect of God's plan, his strategy, was to lavish favor or blessing upon you so that you could follow him faithfully and fruitfully all of your days. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of how hard the battle gets. Here's a couple of examples of what that blessing might look like. They are certainly spiritual in nature. That's the focus here. But any blessing that comes from God. James 1 says, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. So any good that you have came from his hand. But Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What's interesting about those gifts or those fruits, that's certainly what would show up in my life as I'm walking with God. But wouldn't I have to first experience them before they make their way out of me? So I've experienced the love of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God. 
And he gave me those things so that I might walk with him faithfully and fruitfully all of my days. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've probably heard us say over and over and over again, God will always give you what you need to do what he's called you to do. That's where that comes from. Now, will you always have what you want? Will you ever have to do without? See, that's that sneaky place where the enemy comes in and just says, you know, if God really loved you, if God really cared, everything pertaining to life and godliness, you will always have what you need to be faithful to God. And it may be very, very hard and painful, but you'll have enough. And you can walk through those things in a God-honoring way. Remember that Paul is at war. And he is correcting the deceptive idea that God is holding out on us or that we would be better able to follow him if he would just give us a little bit more. Notice that uh, our blessings are somehow located in the heavenly places. And this is a stretch for all of us. Like we live in a very concrete world, right? We can see and feel and smell and see all that. And heavenly places, where is that? <laughs> right? So we don't want to press this too hard and define it so specifically that it's, it's like, well, you just go 30 miles up north and then turn right. And the heavenly places is a concept that invites us to think outside of everything that we can see in the unseen. That phrase, heavenly places, it's, it only occurs five times in the whole New Testament and only in this book, in the book of Ephesians. The heavenly places, maybe in your translation it says the heavenlies, are basically a reference to where Jesus is enthroned. It's where he went, wherever that is, to be seated next to God the Father. By the way, we are said, after our conversion, we are said to be seated with him in the heavenlies. So wherever that is, in some sense, you're there and here. But that's meant to, to carry you through the difficulties of being here. Our blessings from God are ours in Christ and therefore located with Him. Secure. Reliable. It is fair to say that we don't experience the fullness of these blessings right now. They are very real. And we will experience them in their fullness one day when we go to be with the Lord. 
But we are certainly able to walk in those spiritual blessings now. They make a difference in terms of how we deal with life in a fallen world. You've probably heard the the concept already, not yet. So already you have every spiritual blessing that God could give you. And you don't yet experience every sense of fullness in those blessings. And won't until you go to be with him. All right, the next aspect of God's battle plan that Paul celebrates is the act of election. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that when I say that word, everybody's mind just takes off. You just went somewhere. I don't know where you went. Maybe to the heavenlies. (laughs) But I want to ask you, to resist whatever dogmatism you have around that word. Like, let's just come to the text and see what it says. And I will caution you, anybody who speaks dogmatically about this subject as if it's as obvious as this lectern in front of me, beware. This subject has been argued almost as long as church history has been a thing. And that always tells me that it's probably not quite as clear as some people would like it to be. And theologians who argue with one another, it's amazing how they minimize the things that support the other side's position and maximize whatever kind of promotes their position. Like, let's just be done with that. Let's just come to the text and let's, let's see what does Paul want us to understand about God's disposition toward us. Maybe that will help us in the fight. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Key terms chosen holy and blameless before him now this idea of chosenness it's natural to think about that term uh, like with the idea of being chosen over another or instead of another so it's a horizontal comparison here's how I like to think about chosenness I'm chosen in spite of who I am Right? Isn't it amazing? God knows you better than you know yourself, and yet he chose you. He he chose you as if you were the greatest pick in the universe, and you did nothing. So encouraging. We're prone to associate being chosen with being forced to do something against our will. That's part of the debate. But biblically understood, being chosen doesn't eliminate your personal choice. You have, you do, and you will have to make choices for the rest of your life. And those are very real and very consequential. Regardless of what you think about this topic. 
There is a volitional aspect to our salvation, yet without diminishing in any way God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are held in tension throughout the scriptures. And the scriptures don't resolve the tension. It's just there. In fact, probably the hardest thing is to just believe that both are true without trying to pit one against the other. I found it helpful to treat them as complementary or compatible. And just trust that in the mind of God, this makes perfect sense. Even if I can't understand it. More than anything, chosenness is about assurance. That's the purpose of this doctrine. It is to give you an assurance. If God chose you, whatever that means... Before the foundations of the earth, how much do you think you had to do with his choice? Nothing. It is just like take this in today to confront the lies of the enemy that you are worthless and loathsome and unlovable. And then you go, nope. God chose me before the foundation of the earth. He loves me. He has great affection for me. And I didn't do a thing to merit it. Do you see what a difference that makes? I don't have to find some justification for why God would love me. He just does. Isn't that the greatest news on earth? Isn't that what the whole world would love to know? That they're loved? And it's right there. For me, that fuels freedom and gratitude. God's purpose for choosing here in this context was to enable sinful, rebellious people to become holy and blameless. And you and I know we are far from that in terms of right now. But take this in. Because God chose you, because you have been covered by the blood of Christ, you appear to the Lord right now as if you've never sinned, holy, blameless, just like Jesus, and as if you've always done what was right. It's just astounding. No one twisted God's arm. He doesn't feel the least bit of drudgery. It is his greatest delight that he would do that work on your behalf. All right, the third and final aspect of God's plan in this section is another manifestation of God's desire akin to choosing. It says this in the uh, end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption. 
to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Key words, predestined and adoption. There is an interesting interpretive challenge right here. That little phrase, in love, grammatically can go with what was before it or what comes after it. So you could read at the end of verse 4, holy and blameless before him in love. And that would make perfect sense and there would be nothing there that would violate anything else in Scripture. You can also read it as modifying uh, predestined. So, in love, as the ESV writes it here, he predestined us. So, giving us his motive for doing so. Either way is perfectly acceptable. Commentators fall on both sides of that, so you're in good company either way. I tend to lean toward the latter, mainly because this, pa- this part of the passage is about the Father and his disposition toward humanity. And so, it makes sense that we would be told, it was in love that he predestined you for adoption. And what a beautiful picture. This destination for an orphan, a spiritual orphan. And God said, I'm going to destine you to adoption, which in their context, in the Roman world, what would happen is a family would take, and in that context, I don't, I don't know that females were adopted. I think it might have been just males. But it was to bring that male into the family, to give them the family name, which meant they would get all of the rights and responsibilities and inheritance of that family as if they were biologically in that family from the beginning. That is applied to all of us who have placed our faith in Christ. You have been adopted. You have been brought into God's family. And you have, pulling all of this together, every spiritual blessing that is lavished on every child of God. And just as a reminder, in case you forgot, uh, this sentence ends with according to the purpose of his will. This is one of those places in the ESV that's unfortunate because just about every other translation uh, translates the word purpose, pleasure. And that's probably how it ought to be. God has immense joy and intense satisfaction in bringing you home into his family. What is the end game of all of this? What's God going for? We find out here, and then it's repeated two other times in this passage, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This shows up again in verse 12 and then also in verse 14. And it's, it's really there to say all the members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in light of all that they have done on behalf of humanity, they are worthy of praise. 
It, it ought to be. And guys, I, I'm not talking about living in some la-la land where you're not in touch with the reality of a hard life right? You can be sad. You can be angry. You can be lonely. You can feel all of that, and it's fine. Say it to God. Say it to your friends. Say it to your spouse. That's all good, but it ought to always be accompanied by praise. Listen, in all of eternity, how much do you think your life is going to represent? A speck. Again, I'm not minimizing the difficulty of life, but when you see it in the larger plan of God and His goodness, that you will experience His presence forever, it really puts things in perspective. And you can give praise in the worst of circumstances as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will fear no evil. Why? He's with you. So God's aim here is the praise of His name. This praise this grace, this blessing, all of that. It's both a divine attribute and a divine action. He is glorious and he extends the benefits of that with his people. Um, If God were to prioritize anything beyond himself, he would violate his very nature. So he has to be about his glory. He has to be about his praise. And as we join him in that, then we live in perfect alignment with who he is and what he's like. Well, let's ask the question, so what? A lot here. My prayer is that God has given you some truth that you can now take with you going forward to speak to those thoughts and ideas, struggles and fears that might plague you, the only solution is God's truth. So I want to ask you, I just consider some things here. When we ask the question, so what? It's like application. What are we going to do now in response to what God has said? So have you been listening to voices of self-pity? Of entitlement? Cynicism? Pride? Self-reliance? See, this passage corrects all of that. And though it's hard to take, when the Lord (laughs) changes our mind about these things, we begin to experience life as he intended. The sword of the Spirit slices through the schemes of the devil and guides us into all truth. So what truth does the Lord want you to take away with you today? Take a moment, prayerfully ask the Lord, to show you that and then I'll close us.
Lord, we thank you for your word that it anchors us to reality, corrects our wayward thoughts, puts life in perspective. Lord, help us to walk in the truth today and every day after until you come and take us home. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.